grab your Bibles once more, open them up to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be reading chapter 8, verse 34, through to chapter 9, verse 1. So Mark chapter 8 from verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there is some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Amen. Let's pray before we study this together. Lord God, as we dive into these verses from Mark's Gospel, which admittedly isn't a long reading. We pray, Lord God, that we would pay careful attention to each word we read here. We have heard these words many times, many of us, yet we pray that they would not wash over us with the normalcy of them, perhaps, but may we be amazed and challenged deeply by what you tell us here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we get into this passage today, I think it's helpful for us to just reset a little bit about where we were last week, which I know I've done this quite often working through Mark's Gospel, but it's very action-packed, moves from one thing to another. And it's quite often helpful just to remind ourselves of the context. I've said this before, but when I was in Bible college, my principal said, I start out at college, if you fall asleep in class and I've asked you a question, you don't know the answer, just say context. 50% of the time you're going to be right. Context is very helpful to understand the Bible. So where we are, last week we finished off with, uh, we, we read a few different things going back uh, to earlier in uh, Mark 8. Jesus had done the two-stage healing of the blind man in that town called Bethsaida. And after that, he'd moved with his disciples to the area of Caesarea Philippi. Now, you might remember me saying that this area, Caesarea Philippi in particular, was a town built to honour a previous Roman Caesar as a god, or at the very least a demigod, among the Roman pantheon of false gods. And it's with this city in the background that Jesus asks his disciples, well, who do people say I am? Then secondly, who do you say that I am? that Peter gets it right. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. But we saw that when Jesus began to explain from verse 31 to 33 what it meant to be the Christ, that he would suffer, be rejected and die. And he did say that he'd rise again, but that seems to have been missed by the apostles at this point. But the suffering, the rejection, the death that Jesus was going to go through, Peter and the apostles like, we're not ready to hear that. Let's stop this plan. Let's do something else. And Jesus rebuked them for that. See, they thought that the Messiah, that the Christ, was going to bring freedom. Freedom for Israel as a nation. Freedom from Roman oppression. 
Now, Jesus, who is the Christ, did come to bring freedom, but a greater freedom than what the Roman Empire was putting on Israel at the time. Jesus rebuked Peter and the apostles for trying to convince him not to go to the cross, and that's where we left off. In some ways, it was with the horror of the cross in our minds, the horror of rejection, of suffering, of death, for Jesus, who has been nothing but good. We also had the hope in our minds of what Jesus would accomplish at the cross. And whenever we think of the cross, which is something Jesus does talk about today, he tells people, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Whenever we think of the cross that Jesus died on, it's these two things, and I love that we can alliterate it, of horror and hope that should be in our minds. After, the Lord's, after worship, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, where we remember both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We were reminded of the horror in the nature of the death that Christ died on the cross. Just the physical suffering that Christ went through. And then we consider this, the spiritual anguish that Christ went through in bearing our own sins on his shoulders on the cross. It's a horrific thing to think about. Our sins are ugly, they are messy, they are disgusting with huge consequences. Consequences that should horrify us, it should make us cringe, it should make us realise just how much we have wronged God. But in all of that, the hope is that Jesus did pay for our sins when he died on the cross. I read a catchy phrase again this week, salvation is substitutionary. Again, alliteration is good, isn't it? Sticks in your head. Salvation is substitutionary. We have been saved from sin because Jesus substituted himself in for us, receiving the penalty of our sins. Now, we need to remember that when we're reading through Mark's gospel, we have a very different viewpoint in history than the people who were alive during these events as they took place in Mark 8 and the beginning of Mark 9. We have had the pouring out of the Holy Spirit since then. And Jesus has done and finished what at this point in time he was just predicting that he would do. Now, he predicted 100% correctly, but it's future events for these guys, past events for us. So we do have a different vantage point. Now, in all of this, we might be going, well, can we get into the passage? We get that, we might appreciate that. I hope you appreciate some of what I said at the very least, but let's get into the passage. Well, to understand this passage, and the reason I've spoken about the cross, the horror and the hope, is if we don't understand what Christ was going to do, then we can't fully understand what Jesus is asking us to do here. He lays down a challenge for us to take up our cross and follow him. We need to understand the horror of what that meant. If we don't understand what Jesus was going to go through to redeem a people for himself, then we can't answer the question that's really left hanging here from this passage of, will we take up our cross and follow him? We just can't. So again, Jesus has, in verses 31 to 33, he has rebuked Peter and the other apostles. He has said, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking of, of worldly things, of things that you can think of, that man can think of, but not godly things. Jesus has been traveling in these areas around Caesarea Philippi, going to the towns, 
And it seems to have been, up until this point, a conversation between himself and just the disciples, particularly the apostles. Verse 34, he calls more of the people who are following him to himself. So we perhaps have this picture here of Jesus walking, has with his 12 closest apostles a little bit ahead of the crowd. He's said some stuff to them, and he goes, more people need this. Gather around everybody. And he says something which isn't an easy thing to hear. I've been told if you're in marketing, this is not the sort of thing that you tell people. You don't tell people, hey, if you would like to come with me, there's going to be pain, public humiliation, and probably death involved in it for you. It's not the most appealing thing that we read here. Jesus has a lot of opposition. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they were all coming after him. Maybe we're thinking Jesus just needs to build a strong support base around himself to draw people in. Don't threaten anyone. Don't make them uncomfortable. They'll leave. That's a bad thing. But Jesus does what we wouldn't expect. He teaches them spiritual truths, which are hard but needed. And Jesus says to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, those are words that I'm sure most of us here in this room have heard some variation of before when it comes to to living in Jesus' footsteps, to to following after Jesus. As I prayed at the beginning, I hope that these are not words that we've become so familiar with that they lose their impact. See, in these words, Jesus is setting a lot of people, perhaps people in this room here today, straight about what it means to follow him. This is a very, very challenging thing for every single one of us to read. It's about absolute, complete, unshakable faithfulness. Not just being with Jesus because we like his company or because we get things from God, about being willing to give up every single thing that we have to follow after Jesus for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Jesus turns to the crowds and he does say this to them. They have to be willing to deny themselves and take up their cross. Now that would not be an easy thing to hear. There's a few elements there that make this very difficult. Crucifixion, which is the only reason the cross would be brought out in the Roman Empire crucifixion was not the most common cause of death in the Roman Empire, but it was a very, very well-known thing that the Romans would do this to people who threatened them. This constant threat hovering over regions where the Roman Empire had control was often enough to keep the masses in line because of just how horrific this was. But Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus also says to the crowds, you need to deny yourself. And think about that. Why have so many people been coming to Jesus? We've seen a few expressions of faithfulness so far, but people have been coming to Jesus because he taught like no one else. It's like going to a public lecture where you're just blown away by the amazingness of this person, but you're not really believing yet. People have been brought to Jesus for healing. People have come for healing. People have come to have demons cast out. They've seen weather events. They've been fed. So many reasons we've seen through Mark's gospel for people coming to Jesus. 
haven't been because they believe that he is God like his claim. They've come because they like it, because they get something out of it, because they can, in words we might use today, better themselves by doing this. And Jesus is saying to probably greater than 90% of the people there with him at that moment, deny yourself. Those reasons that you've chosen to follow me, they're not good enough reasons. If you truly want to follow me the way I'm telling you to follow me, to live the way that God wants you to live, you have to put every desire you have to the side. This is a hard thing that Jesus is saying. And it continues in verses 35 through 37. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But this is a healer. Surely he values life. Can't we do this? But no, whoever desires his life to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is laying down the gauntlet here to every single person who ever heard, read or comes across these words. And the challenge is one to be ready to sacrifice. I was asked recently if I was willing to lay down my life for the sake of the gospel. Now this wasn't somebody threatening me. It was a question, Callum, are you willing to lay down your life for the gospel? And I said, yes. But the reality is, in my life, I hope that if I was in a situation where somebody was threatening me, I could stick to that. But I've been blessed to not be in that situation. But do we have the strength of faith to say absolutely yes, no matter what challenges we face, no matter what opposition we face? Just because we ourselves haven't been in that situation where we've had to answer with our lives on the line that question... It doesn't mean it's not going to be the case. Who knows what's going to happen in a few years or a few decades? And it's certainly not the case for Christians universally around the world. It's certainly not the case for Christians in China, where their lives are threatened. It's certainly not the case for Christians in Muslim-controlled countries. In the Western world, we often see this so-called tolerance of, of moderate Islam. But you go into the Middle East where Sharia law reigns, these Christians are answering this question in very real ways. Jesus is laying two options before people here. We can build up for ourselves a stockpile of things that we like. We can stockpile for ourselves things that we are comfortable with, things that we enjoy We can give and give and give of ourselves to have those things. There are times where, for the sake of the promotion, we're willing to sacrifice time with friends and family because we want the promotion. Kids, this is increasingly hard for you guys. But many of you, as you go to take part-time jobs, and some of you have already come across this, we're told, well, we'll give you the job if you're willing to, to work Sunday mornings every week. There's a cost involved in that. It's a spiritual cost involved in that where you don't get to fellowship with your church family. But there are so many things we can 
give our souls for, give and give and give until there's nothing left. We can chase after so many things right now. Or we can 100% commit to Jesus. And this requires that thing we've been talking about for the last two weeks, belief. It requires faith. To give everything to Jesus, we have to believe every word of the Bible. We have to believe every claim that Jesus made. We have to believe that Jesus did everything in here. We have to believe that God created the whole world. We have to believe, as much as it defies our comprehension, that we have three persons in one Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We have to believe these things, 100% commit to Jesus. And when we believe these things, we do see that he is worth dying for. And we need to be willing to give everything, every single thing for Jesus so that others might hear about him, hear the words of Jesus that are the words of life. There are other accounts in other Gospels where Jesus asks his disciples, now things are getting hard. The opposition is getting great. You're going to stick with me. And Peter, the one who seems to pipe up most often, doesn't he? He goes, well, you alone have the words of life. Where else are we going to find them? See, this is Jesus. The question put here is, are we willing to take up our cross and follow him? Are we willing to give up everything that makes our lives comfortable? Are we willing to give up all of our, our stuff and have life, perhaps a hard life, but to have life? Or will we choose the stuff and to pursue the stuff and lose our souls in the process? And you know, Jesus asked this last question in those verses there, verse 37, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That can sting as we consider that one, can't it? Like I say, well, I wouldn't give anything. I wouldn't give anything, but I'm sure that like me, you've been tempted to stray away from the things of God for things that we think will ease pain in the short term, to make life more comfortable in the short term. See, these are questions that Jesus asks that are challenging. They cut to the very core of who we are. And they ask us, do we truly believe that Jesus is God? They stop and force us to ask the question of ourselves if we are truly willing to deny ourselves or if we are just continuing to harbour selfishness that will cost us eternal life. We, we haven't read many verses here, but this is a, just such a punchy, confronting part of Scripture. Jesus is hitting us right between the eyes. And <laughs> it continues, doesn't it? Jesus wants us to keep honing in on our hearts. He continues so that we greater understand the significance of what he's saying. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the, with, in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. 
Now, this might be very overbearing. But as we consider what Jesus is saying here, there is a serious question to be asked because it's about eternal spiritual destination. Absolutely is. But we have last week, verse 31, at the end, and after three days, we'll rise again. We have hope of the resurrection. We have here at the end of verse 38 that Jesus will come in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. There will be a second return of Christ. There are things here that, that build up hope. But there are still real questions to ask in the middle of it. And he asks this question about being ashamed. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Are we ashamed to tell people what we do on Sunday mornings? Are we ashamed to tell people if we've gone to Bible study on Wednesday night? No, I can't stay back just that little bit more. I've got to get to Bible study. Are we ashamed to tell people that? What are you doing? Just seeing some people? Got a gathering to go to? There's hints of shame that can come through there. And being ashamed is a very interesting, interesting thing to look at. We often associate shame as something which isn't particularly present in the Western world. We think of shame and honour as being more part of uh, what we see in Eastern countries. But being ashamed is a big thing today. And if you listen to social commentators, there's a few things that we can be particularly ashamed of. We can be ashamed of any involvement that we've ever had with a corporate organisation. That's evil. Not good. You should be ashamed if you drive a car that doesn't have an electric battery in it. You should be ashamed if you've been participating in organised religion. You should be ashamed for sitting here is what the social commentators will tell you. You should be ashamed for having fathers. The patriarchy is wrong. Men are bad. You should be ashamed of all the men in your lives. And if you're men, just be ashamed, full stop. If you have conservative values, be ashamed. Be ashamed of those things. You say you just want to preserve right. No, we tell you that's extremism. You want to preserve the historical and biblical definitions of marriage. You're an extremist. Be ashamed of it. The, the world does acknowledge shame in some areas, but it's unusual areas when we think about it, isn't it? Would these social commentators ever tell you to be ashamed of your sin, of your mistakes? No, the world we live in today tells us that we should celebrate our differences. So you've made mistakes, you haven't got the fitness level that you like, all those things... You know what, don't be ashamed of those things. Celebrate them because they make you different from the person next to you. That's good, you're perfect just the way you are. It doesn't matter how many people you heard along the way, don't be ashamed of that. Be ashamed of everything other than you. Be proud. Be proud of everything about you is what the world says but so often as we focus on elevating ourselves we deny the things of God we say no I'm good enough the way I am I don't want to accept that somebody had to pay the price for my sins I'm ashamed not of my sins I'm ashamed of God I'm ashamed of Christ I'm ashamed that he had to do these things 
I don't want to be associated with him. I'll push him away. Think about that. The world tells us to be so proud of our mistakes. The world tells us to be so proud of our sin that it results in us being ashamed of the God who deals with all of our sin and all of our issues in a healthy, wholesome, constructive way. See, this this passage is massive. This passage shows us what it means to follow Jesus. And it is either all in or not in. We need to be willing to give up every single thing that we have and that sounds huge and that is huge. This is a big calling to follow Christ. We're willing to, to give everything up for his sake. You know what can help us? The example of Christ. The example of Christ. Christ tells us to carry our cross, but what did Christ do? He carried his own cross. And the things that he is predicting here, he did. He was nailed to his own cross. He rose again. He is now seated at the Father's right hand in heaven and he is interceding for his people. And as we've seen here, he is coming again with the Father's glory. Should we not die and meet him there first? Last week, the apostles were shocked by the idea of of Jesus going to the cross. We saw that it had to happen. Jesus had to go to the cross. There is no other way to pay for sins. For God to so definitively clear the slate of our debt and claim us for himself. We see the why, we see the how. To pay for our sins and definitively claim us as his own. And that first verse of chapter 9. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. I'll be going, well, maybe Jesus missed the mark on that. No, he didn't. He didn't. There was some standing there who didn't die before we got to Acts chapter 2. They have Pentecost where the Spirit came and the kingdom started to do amazing things. The kingdom of God was present with power. Some people were alive even then. See, what we have here is this challenge, is hard-hitting. It makes us think, is it really worth following Jesus if the price is potentially everything we have? At the very least, there is a willingness required to give up everything we have. And perhaps even we will live in a time where we have to give up everything we have to follow Jesus. That is an enormous, enormous price. That is an enormous cost. Do you believe what we read here in Mark's gospel, what we read in the whole Bible so strongly that we would be willing to pick up our cross? to suffer every ounce of public humiliation that the world could heap upon us, to be willing even to die, that others might see just how much Jesus means to us. Because this is how committed to him we have to be 
and to claim this as his own. Again, this is big. Remember, while some of us may have to do this, we hope and pray not all of us will. For us, it's a hypothetical, really, isn't it? But for Jesus, he did it. He is not asking us to do more than he has already done. The world cannot stand God. The world cannot stand those who truly love God. It's a big thing. But we see the glory of the Father through what Christ did. Whatever hardships we face, there is always reason to rejoice in him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this challenge that you have laid before us in your word now. We know that it is very easy for us to become comfortable and complacent, yet, Lord God, we pray that these words would continue to to niggle away in our minds, that we might not think that we are willing, but may we truly search our hearts with your help to see whether we really are willing to give it all for you. Help us, Lord God, to be honest in this. Help us to answer with certainty. Yes, we are, because you are good, you are gracious, and even if we give it all in this life, we have an eternity of glory with you, and that is a wonderful hope to look forward to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.